This podcast is brought to you by Podcast Nation. You're listening to the Momwell Podcast. Today, I am so excited to welcome back Dr. Dan Singley to the show. Dr. Dan is a board-certified psychologist, director of the Center for Men's Excellence, and he's currently the president-elect of the APA Society for Psychological Study of Men and Masculinities, and his research and practice focus on men's mental health and the transition to fatherhood. I had some pretty burning questions for Dr. Dan. I know inside and out what the invisible load is that we carry in motherhood. And I'm giving the benefit of the doubt and running under the assumption that fathers also have an invisible load that they carry, though I cannot quite put my finger on exactly what it is. I've invited Dr. Dan here to help us understand what the invisible load of fatherhood is. In this episode, we talk about the contradictory messages that fathers receive about their role, how gender norms reinforce traditional fatherhood roles, and we also talk about the value in flexibility around the concept of masculinity. We wrap up with the pressing and burning question, what exactly do fathers want for Father's Day, as that is approaching us here shortly? But in all seriousness, this is easily one of my top 10 favorite episodes that I've ever recorded on the show. I can't wait for you to hear this conversation with Dr. Dan Singley. Did you know that moms aren't the only parents at risk for postpartum mental health concerns? All partners face major adjustments during the transition into parenthood, and everybody is at an increased risk for developing depression, anxiety, or other struggles. The postpartum period brings a lot of difficulties from sleep deprivation to uncertainty in your role to difficulty bonding with your new baby. I want you to know that mental health matters, not just for moms, but for all partners. If you're struggling to find your footing as a parent and aren't sure what to do, the best thing you can do for yourself, for your partner, and for your baby is to take care of yourself. Working with a therapist who understands and specializes in the adjustment to parenthood can help you work through your feelings, navigate the difficult changes in your life, and determine how to meet your needs so you can heal, thrive, and show up as the best version of yourself. It's time to break the stigma, to reach out for help, and prioritize your mental health. Motherhood is hard, but care shouldn't be. Connect with one of our qualified maternal mental health specialists today. Find out if we serve your area and book a free 15-minute virtual consultation at momwell.com slash booking. That's momwell.com slash booking. Welcome to the Momwell podcast, where we're committed to helping you cope with the load of motherhood. I'm your host, registered psychotherapist and founder of Momwell, Erica Jossa. At Momwell, we know that motherhood is hard but care shouldn't be. We're committed to providing you with knowledge, tools, and support to navigate the challenges of motherhood. Our mission is to put moms back on the priority list and empower them to create a mental wellness toolbox free from judgment, fear, and shame. On the show, we'll be discussing topics such as postpartum depression, identity loss, the mental load of motherhood, and more. We'll be joined by experts, moms, and professionals who can offer advice, practical tips, relatable stories, and honest conversations. Here at MomWall, we believe that when a mom is well, a baby is well. So join us as we discuss the topics that matter to you with experts who get it. Together, we can redefine motherhood and change the way moms are treated. 
Dr. Dan, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. I had you on. We're going back like 2019, I think like fifth or sixth episode. I was like cutting the show and editing it and doing an awful job (laughs) by myself. And to come kind of like full circle, it's been a few years. So excited to have you back. Thrilled to be a repeat interviewee. Yeah. How are things going for you? You've got your Center for Men's Excellence. You're involved in Postpartum International, Lot on the Go. How's life been for you these days? It's been busy and we've been expanding. I have a group practice here in San Diego that specializes in men's issues. We just bought office space, gutted it and redid it. Hiring new people. I've got a couple of postdocs coming on. So, you know, onward. Good stuff, but takes a lot. Yeah, the responsibility of being a business owner. I had like a little mini meltdown last night to my husband and was like, can't I just like punch a clock at work? And, you know, sometimes I long for those Starbucks barista days where it was a little bit more simple. But yeah, well, congratulations on your success and your expansion and growth. For those who aren't familiar with you, and maybe to recap a little bit, I'm curious about your story and how you niche down in working with men because you've become a real advocate and voice, even with organizations like Postpartum Support International, clearly something you're very passionate about and invested in. How did this niche and passion come about for you? So there's an old saying in psychology research that uh, research is me searching. It's very much that for me. It really began when I was an intern at UC San Diego in 2004. And a a local psychologist came and spoke with our intern cohort. And he talked about the psychology of men and had developed some classes for expectant fathers. And at the time, Mm. I had a three-week-old who's now 18. And it just kind of like blew my mind because I had taken, you know, when you take a, a sexuality and gender class, in psychological grad school, you're learning about women, you're learning about femininity, about trans and queer and gender nonconforming, but there's nothing about men. Mm. It's, it's, a, it's just a major blind spot that I think persists to this day. And when I finished my postdoctoral fellowship, I ended up, his name's Jeff Jones. He's now become a good friend and mentor of mine here in San Diego. And I, I just called, cold called Jeff and said, hey man, I want to do fatherhood stuff. I'm completely jazzed about it. And um, he brought me under his wing and I got a first five grant to develop my own expected dad's class and just proceeded to have initially fatherhood and and especially early fatherhood, like the dude to dad transition. Mm -hmm. That was very authentic for me. And I saw a real need there because it's a bit we we, we're going to talk about invisibility. I saw a lot of, of lack of visibility of those fathers and of their needs. And from that, I kind of backed into overall, like the psychology of gender with a focus on men and masculinities. Mm-hmm. I had not taken a gender class, I don't think, until I read a book by Kate Mangino, Equal Partnership, mm. and I had her on the show, oh, maybe about a year ago now. And it rocked my world and how I see like motherhood and fatherhood and ha- like the division of household labor and really, really eye-opening book for me. And one of the things when it comes to this invisible load, 
I hear about, and I, well, I talk about, frankly, the invisible load all the time here for mothers, right? And I've lived this. I can see this in my own life, in the gendered norms and expectations that I carry. And it's a very familiar space that I can, you know, speak to. But then there's like this narrative that happens where, and there's like research and stats that I see where like men have X amount more leisure time than women per day, per week, and things like that. And and maybe that's really true in some families. And I'm curious to know how that research is defining leisure. And there's I have several questions about that. But from my perspective, my husband works his freaking butt off. And it might not be household-related tasks or childcare-related tasks, but it's still tasks and there's still pressure and there's still things that he shoulders. So I want to understand and lean into a little bit I know that there's an invisible load for fathers, but I also know that I don't understand exactly what it is. And I'm curious, I'm curious about it. And I'm curious your experience in working with dads, like what, what comes out as invisible pressures and loads that they carry? Okay. I love this question. And this isn't just semantic bait and switch, but I'm going to take this idea of invisibility and wind it back a little bit. And then I think answer the actual question. Yeah. So one of the most common words and experiences that I hear from dads throughout the pregnancy and birth process at typically not at birthing centers, they don't talk this way, but when they're in hospitals or they're or, you know, going to prenatal visits and even well baby visits, the dads regularly say, I felt invisible. Hmm. I felt like a second class citizen. To the extent that sometimes like folks wouldn't like, you know, nurses or techs or whatever, just wouldn't look them in the eye, wouldn't answer their question, wouldn't sort of, you know, that's basically involve them. And so when you're asking about invisible load in the frame of partnership, I think it's pretty important to go back and look at how even these early experiences in healthcare systems, as well as other, you know, broader family cultural dynamics can begin the process of overtly or tacitly giving these dads the sense that they need to step back. Mm. And it's not just that, but I think it's a really important dynamic to hang on to because it can sort of set the stage for the parent. So I live in Southern California, so we got all kinds of different family constellations. We got, you know, polyamorous polycules and gay dads and lesbian dads and queer parents and all this. So mm-hmm. just for the sake of the question that you're asking, if it's a couple and they have this sort of cultural beginning where dad needs to take a step back, right? we're all socialized to believe that early parenthood is the purview of gestational parents, of mom. Mm-hmm. And they're, I mean, sh- I mean, with the exception of trans dads, like the men are carrying the babies. However, there's really no research to support that gender per se impacts substantively how well one parents, including the parent of a newborn or an infant. And um, Mm -hmm. going forward from there, the socialization out in society as a whole may or may not percolate into any specific family. But within them, I see this a lot. And it's this dynamic tension between contemporary fathers, certainly in our culture, and there are lots of lots of different caveats that we can make here about ethnicity and geography and SES and so forth. But generally speaking, fathers these days, including the fathers of babies and infants, are expected to be a lot more involved. Mm. And so if there's this kind of 
tacit background sense of, yeah, but this isn't really your thing. But on the other hand, you're expected to be much more involved. Mm. There's this dynamic tension, which sets up a kind of uncertainty about where do I fit in? What should I be doing that can strongly impact a guy's sense of self-efficacy or confidence, which can be really easily taken down a peg or shattered. And so the invisible load question you're asking, I localize that in, and again, I'm now I'm heading into what may sound like pretty heteronormative and like sexist uh, territory here, but just hear me out because this mm. is very well borne out in the literature and certainly in, in experience. So there's a concept called gatekeeping, gatekeeping or gate closing, mm-hmm. right? And in the literature, it's referred to as maternal gatekeeping or gate closing. But of course, people of all genders can engage in this behavior. The gender dynamics matter here in that if, if it's a male-female couple, and the dad is engaging with the baby in ways that are different than the way the, the mom or the gestational parent is, and she is concerned about it, the gatekeeping begins in terms of bringing down the amount that he can be involved or engaged with the baby. Mm. And for dads that want to be involved or engaged, then they start getting resentful. They don't get the hands-on opportunities to increase that self-efficacy, the confidence to be involved. And uh, oftentimes they start developing tension and the mom might get more anxious, the dad might get more anxious and upset. And the more this happens, they kind of have this distance between them. Mm-hmm. And frankly, oftentimes this plays out problematically because dudes tend not to do this well. And they're like, well, I'm going to just take the baby and go to my parents for a weekend when they've like never really been alone with the baby. I'm like, no, dude, that's not what you're doing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> We're going to talk about what's going on here and how do we do this equitably and how do we get you time with the kiddo and honor what's going on with your partner and so forth. But This is a very long way of answering your question, but from a psychological perspective, from a family systems relational perspective, you have to be aware of some of these dynamics that are playing out when you ask the question, why is dad involved or uninvolved? Want to get smarter about your health, but feel overwhelmed trying to separate fact from fiction? We hear a lot about gut health, microbiomes, and other nutrition topics, But taking the time to research these is exhausting, and there's a lot of misinformation out there. The Zoe Science and Nutrition Podcast makes it so much easier to get the information you need. With the help of world-leading scientists, the podcast gives you research-based information so you can make informed choices for yourself without pressure and guilt. People are loving Zoe Science and Nutrition. Listener Stephanie's Apple Review says the Zoe Science and Nutrition Podcast is a life-changing, science-based, myth-busting podcast. That's a must-listen for anyone who eats food and wants to understand how it affects their body. With the Zoe Science and Nutrition Podcast, you can join Stephanie and millions of others accessing quality information about their health. Find it wherever you listen to podcasts. One of the most relentless mental loads is being the juggler of medical appointments. Researching doctors, reading reviews, making phone calls to book appointments, it's a lot of stress when you're already juggling so much invisible labor. That's what makes ZocDoc great for moms. ZocDoc is a free app and website where you can search and compare hundreds of types of highly rated in-network doctors, including mental health providers, and instantly book appointments with them online. ZocDoc has doctors of all specialties, including therapists, psychiatrists, and psychologists with verified patient reviews so you can make sure they check all your boxes. 
You can find mental health providers who offer in-person appointments, virtual consults, or both, whatever works for you. The typical wait time to see a mental health provider booked on ZocDoc is just four days. Sometimes you can even book same-day appointments. Make juggling appointments easier with ZocDoc. Go to ZocDoc.com momwell and download the ZocDoc app for free. Then find and book a top-rated therapist, psychiatrist, or psychologist today. That's Z-O-C-D-O-C dot com slash momwell. ZocDoc.com slash momwell. It's kind of blowing my mind here a little bit because on one hand, we're saying fathers need to step it up in the household slash care work perspective, right? Like that's, those are the words that are being spoken, Mm -hmm. but the societal pressures are saying, this isn't a role for you. Like you're not, why are you involved in feeding? Like this is on mom or like, why are you doing like, So what is being sort of conveyed and the messaging and the norms that are sort of really like upholding what should happen are counter that. And so what do you do? Like, what do you do with that? Not that like your hands are tied, but if we're like asking and expecting things, and I actually just submitted my final manuscript for my book that actually is all about this for women because we don't understand the ways that we reinforce the patterns of keeping the load on our shoulders and that, you know, we're socialized to believe that we're a good mom if we do these things and we take them all on and we do them well. So what a like rock and a hard place to be stuck in because it's like you need to be more involved. Oh, but not in this care task or this household task because it doesn't get done this way or that way or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so like, what do you do? It's interesting. I've had some conversations with my husband while writing the manuscript and things about this. And one of the things I think is the occupational hazard (laughs) from my side of things is how we handle the kids emotionally and like in their big emotions. And I'm a freaking therapist for crying out loud. So like, of course, I've got (laughs) big opinions on this, right? Mm -hmm. And we had a really hard conversation one day where he was just like, well, like I'm damned if I do and I'm damned if I don't. Like, I want to do it, but then like I want to help, you know, ride out the tantrum or do the thing. But then when I do, you swoop in because I'm not doing it how you would do it or I'm not doing it, you know, right. And so either way, you're mad if I don't step in or you're mad if I do. Like what am I supposed to do with that, you know? And I think that that pattern, as you said, just plays out over and over again in a lot of different areas. It does. First of all, shout out to you for getting your book submitted. Like, that's huge. Thank you. I know. Mazel tov. That's huge. (laughs) Thanks so much. But that, what you're talking about, that dynamic, like clearly you and your husband sit down and talk about it. Yeah. And and it's it's, it's interesting. Like in the, I'm sure I'm not telling you anything you don't know, but in, in the field of parenting education and perinatal mental health, like some folks get really entrenched in you know, it's got to be only boob, no bottle or the Bradley method or PBYs or people have this like one size fits all approach. When my experience has very much been that that's kind of a shortcut to the real diversity in family situations and circumstances. And 
where I'm coming from is not that. Like, I don't, I don't try to use anxiety to like scare people into you have to do this, you have to do that. I'm much more focused on dads be involved. Just don't be uninvolved. And then what that looks like for you in your context, in your culture, that's probably going to vary a lot. It's funny, I'm in Southern California and like there are tons of like hardcore, like, you know, earth God granola dads that are like all about. And I'm like, cool, be that. Awesome. Mm. That is one way to father. And there are other ways to father and to partner that are more aligned with traditional gender roles. And it works. Yeah. So like, I think it's really important. Like when we talk about this aspect of fatherhood, like I see it as localized within more broadly masculinities. Yeah. And, and those are changing. And they've been changing. This isn't a brand. I was actually just reading an interesting Wall Street Journal article that, that talked about how like what the king of England in the 1660s was saying, coffee is going to ruin men and make them lethargic. And then, you know, turn of the century, like the Boy Scouts were founded because they had to instill, you know, masculinity in men. And, and this whole idea that manliness is in danger and in peril and in crisis, like it's not new. Mm. The reality is that it does continue to evolve and shift. And this question that you're asking, the invisible load that dads carry, to me, like the sociological context is that manliness, call it masculinity, does continue. I don't see it as under attack. I see it as under construction. Mm. And I think it's changing faster in early fatherhood than it is in any other area of masculine identities. Mm. And that's still being the case. We as a society are not at a place where we accord the same kind of respect to men that are acting in traditionally feminized ways. Yes. Because women's lib and feminist movements really kicked off in you know 60s and 70s and have now had 50 years. I'm not trying to paint a picture of an equal playing field. I am saying that movement and the social changes, like the upward mobility, like divorce rates of women divorcing men rates of women not getting married because they don't feel like they have to, of, you know, ending up in C-suites and the conversation about the need to have women on, on boards and so forth, like that could not look more different than it did 50 years ago. Mm-hmm. And there are still some people that are like, well, I don't agree with that. And, you know, that's up to you. The point I'm driving at is we as a society still say things like a male nurse. If it's a teacher, it's a coach. And for example, like I'm a therapist, I'm in a pink collar profession. Mm-hmm. Right. Like, like generally speaking, caring professions like mental health, we have feminized. And so when we bring that down, think about stay at home dads. Mm-hmm. Well, you need to justify why. Like I've worked with a number of fathers who they took their kid to the park on a Tuesday and got the stink eye from a group of moms that were like, you know, what's that predator doing at the park? He's like, uh, it's called fathering. That's so interesting. These are some of the aspects that you see. Well, I hear this in the workplace all the time when I'm around women who are pushing for like equality in the workplace and, you know, more leave and and fathers taking leave and all this stuff that, you know, you don't hear a dad get asked, shouldn't you have been on that field trip? Or like the care role, household role type of questions of like, oh, you should be home with your kids. But if we flip them and put them in a role that is more traditionally feminine, where work is maybe more traditionally masculine in terms of norms and things, then they bump up against the same 
comments or the same norms, right? So yes, but the power dynamics are different. Okay. Right. Generally speaking, when women assume more masculine or more male roles, this is going to super cheese off some people, but in broad brushstrokes, essentially what they're doing is moving toward a position of higher prestige or higher power, right? When we think about it in a sort of male hegemony perspective, right? Mm. The flip side of that is true in that men, by working in a pink collar profession or staying at home or choosing not to be the one who earns, are essentially feminizing themselves, which if we don't do any kind of thoughtful look at this, it's essentially losing power. And it's that piece of it, which I was alluding to earlier, like that we as a society still buy into both of those dynamics. And it's one of those that really impacts the guy's interest and ability to step up and do some of the things that, and there's the psychological construct of gender role conflict, which is when you act outside of typical gender roles, there's the stress of it. And violating the man code for some guys is just a big no-no. They can't handle it. And like, maybe what we really actually need to do is just have some cisgendered white men be forced to stay at home with children in order to see and value care work so that it doesn't feel like a demotion. Because what you're experiencing is what women describe all of the time, right? Like they Uh live in these roles of caring for children and feeling undervalued and feeling invisible and feeling like the work that they do goes unpaid and not acknowledged and not valued. But for men who hold power and are not used to giving work up for free and not being valued and applauded for their work, feel the shift of that because it's never been expected of them to do it before. Would you say? Yeah. Oh, 100%. Whereas a woman... Like we're socialized to put others' needs before our own and to people please and to care for others our entire lives. So Mm -hmm. like we don't have a sharp contrast or shift in baseline to be able to say, wait a minute, what the frick is going on here? Mm -hmm. Right? Mm -hmm. So maybe we maybe we need some (laughs) some more dads to be like, maybe we'd value care work. Maybe we'd value the the work that stay-at-home moms are doing more as a result and maybe pay them. Who knows? So two things. One, if you look at the U.S. Census data, stay-at-home fathers are actually one of the, by percentage now, not by overall numbers, one of the fastest growing groups based on gender. But but it's like they went from 2% to like 6%. Right, right. So it's not huge numbers, but the overall percentage of them is pretty huge when you look at it from a public health perspective. On the flip side, like to the point that you're making, for a lot of these dads, like frankly, like like myself, you know, middle class, cishet, white dudes, overeducated and all and all of that, moving into the perinatal period might be the very first time that they've felt one down. Mm. Or they moved into a space where it was clear that they were seen as the second class citizen. And what I was alluding to earlier that they experienced in the hospital. And for some of these guys that are used to kind of like holding all the cards, it can be pretty upsetting. That being said, for other guys, it's like, oh, okay, now I get it. Mm-hmm. And it can be a context of real discomfort, but, but connection and, and growth and awareness. That's not just how do I care for a baby, but how can I be a more sort of empathetic, emotionally available, like more fully functioning human? 
Mealtime with kids can be stressful, but with Factors Delicious ready-to-eat meals, it can be a lot easier. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to eat in just two minutes. No worrying about ingredients and nutrition, no prep, no mess, and no cooking while wrangling toddlers. Choose from a weekly menu of 35 options, including popular options like Calorie Smart, Keto, Protein Plus, or Vegan and Veggie. Also discover more than 60 add-ons every week, like breakfast, on-the-go lunch, snacks, and beverages to help you stay fueled and feel good all day long. What are you waiting for? Get started today and fuel up for your springtime goals. Factor can even be tailored to your schedule. Customize your weekly meals with the flexibility to get as much or as little as you need. Pause or reschedule deliveries to suit your lifestyle. Take the stress out of meals with Factor. Head to factormeals.com slash momwell50 and use code momwell50 to get 50% off your first box. Mom rage often leads us to feeling ashamed, but the truth is that our rage doesn't mean we're bad moms. In fact, anger is a sign from our bodies that our needs aren't being met. As moms and therapists, Dr. Asherine Areem's psyched mommy and I understand mom rage. We know that we all lose our cool sometimes. And we also know that with the right tools and strategies in place, those moments happen less often. We've teamed up and combined our years of experience to create all the rage, raising kids with less anger and more connection, a course designed to be your go-to resource for preventing and handling your anger. We dive into what causes your anger, how it impacts your body, how to reframe your thinking, and how to stay calm in triggering moments. And because we are all human, we also include strategies for repairing after we inevitably lose our cool. In honor of Maternal Mental Health Week, you can save $20 on the course with promo RAGE20 this week only. Don't miss out on your chance to save and make a positive change. Head to momwell.com rage and save with code RAGE20. That's momwell.com rage code RAGE20. The fact that you bring up like the norms around masculinity. So I've written about a bit and, and done a bit on healthy versus unhealthy masculinity or toxic versus untoxic, though I know that that wording is not everybody's favorite. (laughs) And I think that there's like an interesting piece here because we want dads to step into this emotional, mental, invisible experience of child rearing and, and caring for the household and just understanding all that goes into that. But that involves them to embrace a certain amount of nurturing, of um, stepping into these care or sort of traditionally pink-coated tasks, as we had said. Mm -hmm. And when men have grown up or if they've grown up in an environment that is very traditional, sort of unhealthy masculinity, they've been raised to reject every ounce of that to be perceived as stepping into any kind of feminine pink-coated kind of role, right? Like, Because to be masculine is to be like, oh, and be the opposite of that. Do you think that that's true? Like, I feel like it's very competing. It's almost like magnets that repel because how can you step into that if you were told not to be that your entire life? So, yes, some some really seminal research in the 70s on the nature of masculinity 
one, it's unsurprisingly, but it's exactly what you just said, one of the cross-cultural top tenets of masculinity is anti-femininity, which doesn't mean that you hate women. It means whatever it is to be feminine in your culture, the best way to be masculine is to not be that, mm. which shows you there's a, there's a pretty strong like reactive nature to some of the foundations of being masculine. Actually, I'm glad you brought that up. Like, I get this a lot, right? Being an expert in men's issues and the psychology of men. And I think it's important to say there's nothing inherently wrong with masculinity. Or we talk about it in, in terms of masculinities, right? Like it's not one monolithic aspect. Like what I'm doing here with you as a man is different than what I do with my wife or my kids or my poker buddies or whatever. So masculinities. Okay. But masculinity does get kind of a bad rap these days. And it gets conflated with, if you're talking about masculinity, you're talking about toxic. Whereas what you just spelled out, I 100% agree with, the issue is not masculinity. The issue is rigid, inflexible, traditional masculinity. And the rigidity and the inflexibility are the problem, Hmm. not the traditionality of it. And what I would say to me, like, because I, I get, you know, I'll, I'll do a podcast like this or an interview or something. And they're like, okay, Dr. Stingley, like, what's the executive summary? And to me, the executive summary is men's mental health is really about balance and flexibility. Mm. Balance in the roles that we enact and flexibility in how we do so. Because you've got the traditional guy, like, the, you know, the Marlboro man, right? Like that's, you know, strong, silent, nothing bugs me. I'm not feminine at all. I'm super masculine. Well, I mean, you can be that and wear a baby, Mm -hmm. you know, but that's where that balance and flexibility comes in. And and part of the problem is that men are so easily shamed and vulnerable to feeling weak Mm. that for some of these guys that have rigid tradition and some of these fathers Mm -hmm. that have rigid traditional masculine frames, they will engage in really kind of confusing and unhealthy behavior. That's bad for their, their own physical and mental health, for their relationships with their children and partners in the name of not feeling vulnerable or shamed about not being a man. I see it over and over and over again. I know it's, I see it too. I see when we're talking about having men be more nurturing, especially social media is the freaking worst for this crap. It's like, <laughs> oh, like be be a man, be this, you're blah, blah, blah. Like I can see how stepping outside of that role is intimidating. What you were saying before, I had a conversation in an interview and I wish I could remember which one it was right now. I think it was Dr. Darcy and we were talking about her book, All the Rage and gender roles and things in the division of labor in the home. And and she was saying that men have a smaller window of expression for gender, whereas what you were saying is we've widened that window for women. So women's gender expression, I wouldn't say is policed back into place as much, though, marketing and beauty industry. I don't know if I would agree. Whatever. 100% agree. But I, I would say... We're policed in our roles in motherhood. People have a lot of shit to say about that. Of course. Yeah, super mom. Gotta be super mom. Right. So our role in the home, yes. Our expression of our gender, maybe not as much. But for men, that window has remained very narrow. You know, strong, protector, provider. And it really hasn't 
open, well, it's starting to, but not to the degree that it needs to. Slowly. Yeah. I, again, 50, 60 years behind what the feminist and women's liberations movement mm-hmm. have done. Mm-hmm. I do see it broadening, but I look at it in a very multidimensional way. Mm-hmm. You do see more, not so much social. I really don't do much social media. Like I'm that old dude, but like what you do see on television, for example, yeah, commercials and content, which show fathers being highly engaged with their children, although not usually with babies. Actually, one of the studies that my, uh, I, have a, I have a research program that looks at paternal involvement with infants and how to measure it and psychosocial correlates of father's mental health and so on. One of the projects that we're doing right now, it's a qualitative study. We've taken the top, uh, I think it's the top 20 books, parenting education books from Amazon, and we're doing a a qualitative analysis where we look at the words and the pictures of them. And the basic questions are, do they include information about dads? If so, what are the terminologies they use in the pictures as well as the written content? And then we're looking at some other stuff around like heteronormativity and gender and so forth. But I mean, top level, a lot of times are just not even included in those. But it does appear to be getting better. Mm-hmm. Like So widening that gender bandwidth a bit, it's just depending on the context. And for example, if it's a dad from like a marginalized group, right? Like take like, a, like an African-American dad who already has to deal with the systemic racism, right? And all the threats to masculinity that come to just being male in that way. It's not the same as it is for like an HIV positive bisexual Latino dad in the Bronx. Like Mm. it doesn't, you have to factor in these different aspects to what's on the line when I act outside of what society is telling me as a man. And it strongly impacts that invisible load Mm. question Mm -hmm. that you let off with. Mm -hmm. Because I'm risking something. I'm risking something. And people don't like to turn the man card, but (laughs) then we should stop teaching us that there is one. Mm. It reminds me again of something that Kate Mangino addressed in her book about how, I'm going to mess this up. (laughs) I'm not going to get this right. But just from what I can recall is like you hear comments like, oh, I get this all the time because I have a very involved husband. And it's like, oh my gosh, like he does so much. And like all this stuff where it's like, oh my gosh, when dads do the bare minimum, they get all the praise kind of mentality from previous generations. So when we have fathers becoming more involved and those stats do shift. Like you said, like the stay-at-home dads has like doubled. But when the percentage is so low and the gap is so wide, we think that some progress is like enough progress and it sort of like plateaus out or we become complacent because we think like we've done enough. Mm. And there was an actual term that she explained for this. And I can't remember exactly what it was, but the idea where like we run the risk of plateauing And these numbers sort of not making any more gains because when they do increase a bit, all this applause comes out and all of this sort of reinforcement and it kind of just peters out there or like stabilizes a bit. And there's just such a big gap to close here, you know, in terms of the invisible load as I see it being related to like childcare and household labor, you know, and or parental involvement. But I do agree that we're getting there. I just, I guess I fear that that applause that comes, you know, like. It'll stall. Yeah. So let me speak to that. It's interesting. Like I myself experienced, because I'm like this, you know, I didn't get into this by accident. Like I ran the dad's club at my kid's school forever. 
uh, super involved with them in early age. Like, doesn't mean I'm the best dad there is, but what I did was show up. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I have experienced, and I've certainly talked with other dads, you know, patients and friends alike who had an experience like this. Their kids sitting in a shopping cart and they're at the grocery store and cruising around. And inevitably it's a woman. It's like an older mom. Like you said, like there's a generational thing that would come up and say, you're such a good dad. Yeah. And on the face of it, it's a very kind sentiment, but it betrays a sense that, wow, that's different. I wouldn't have expected that from you. And a lot of these dads will get that or some version of mom-splaining, mm. basically, where they're like, okay, you didn't even ask me like what my context is or like what I know about. It's like, so that park scenario, plenty of times, like these dads will be like, yeah, you know, moms come up and say like, you need to do this and this and this. And they're like, okay, thanks for that. Interesting. I never would have seen that. Oh yeah. It's like, I myself experienced that. And it was kind of like, uh, okay. Like, I don't think I get a cookie for taking my kid with me to go run some errands, but like, I get the context of it. Yeah. The subtext of it really matters. And whereas you've got a mom pushing those same kids, and if for some reason one of them is like squawking or melting down, she's getting judged for the exact same yeah. task, right? <laughs> I definitely see that. And I also, you're talking about the stepping in. What did you call it? Mom-splaining? Is that what you call I've never heard that before. Is that what you said? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, in this context, yeah. Oh, like, like, I can see myself. I'm totally the type of person. Like, I can totally <laughs> see myself being like, oh, like your kid's shoe is undone. Like, <laughs> I can just so see it. I've never heard that term before. Which is a kind gesture. Mm -hmm. It's mm -hmm. just, again, the subtext and the context here matter. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. This is like, man, I'm so excited. I love this conversation and I feel like uh, we could hash it out all day long and maybe we do a bit of a deeper dive into either one of these areas and, and I'll put a call out to the listeners. And if there's any part of this you want to know more about, please write in, DM me, let me know and we can explore it further. So my real burning question, Dan, like the real burning question for me is like, okay, mothers spend their days and hours and moments and seconds thinking about and planning and organizing and managing every bit of the day-to-day -day life within the home and of the childcare and of the, you know, anticipatory labor and the monitoring of the things. And this is their invisible load. This is what they're carrying that they feel that is not shared in, not acknowledged, not seen. Day-to-day, mm -hmm. -day, help me out here, Dan, day-to-day, what is the invisible load that fathers are carrying? And is it pertaining to household labor and childcare or is it other? Like help me out with the stressors that they're managing and juggling. So it's an excellent question. I see the top level load being, am I supposed to do this thing or not? And I don't think that is as relevant to, should I wash the dishes or dry the bottles? as much as should I be the one that goes in and gets the kid in the middle of the night or makes the decision about what's the timing of feedings or the appropriateness of media content or whatever. So I think it's that top level uncertainty. And again, like going from a kind of stereotypical father's working outside the home. I mean, again, I live in Southern California. Everybody, unless you're one of these masters of the universe types, everybody has dual income to survive. Yeah. <laughs> so the parents, they may work inside the home for paid work or outside. But if we're going to look at the like 
father's trying to manage the push and pull of work-life balance in the context of what really should I be doing? What's the most bang for the buck? Like it is a well-established, like there's, there's great few research on this. The time that we spend with our children, we spend a higher percentage of it in play than in sort of hands-on care as compared with moms. Mm-hmm. Moms spend significantly higher percentage of the time in the hands-on care than the play. And the wedge between those two is narrowing, but it ain't that narrow. And I believe that the answer to this question is to communicate clearly and not just to communicate clearly like in a demanding way, but to lead basically with like an appreciative inquiry kind of perspective. Like if you've got one parent or both parents that are walking around like gnashing their teeth, like, I mean, you've probably seen the YouTube video of the guy that's like, wait, watch, if you leave the dish here, it just gets clean. Mm-hmm. It's magic, mm-hmm. right? Like, in fact, my wife and I were just snarkily doing that to our kids about the laundry that was all over the floor. But I digress. <laughs> it's the lack of communication is what's funny, I think, about that. And the ability to come together and say, like, okay, you know, um, uh, the, the Fair Play book and, mm-hmm. and the card decks and all that. Like, I use that all the time to get at this exact question. I tell them, you don't have to get the book. Just get the card deck. Mm-hmm. Sit down and do it. Because it invites a very clear, direct behavioral delineation of, I own this. And if I own this, you don't get to second guess me. If you own that, I don't get to either. But it invites then an ongoing conversation about who owns what, what's authentic for me, what's authentic for you. And oftentimes the communication is not there. It's like gnashing my teeth. You're not doing the things. I might be communicating in a way where what I'm saying is you're not doing X. And it's not bad communication, like it from my perspective, because I'm telling you very clearly what I want you to do. The problem is I don't understand why it's hard for you to do or not to do. Mm. That's the piece of this conversation. It's not just the invisibility. I mean, it is the invisibility, but to me, the important element of the invisibility is why is he not doing it? Why can't you see it? Why can't you anticipate it and just do it? Why do I need to tell you or instruct you or however? Yeah. I've heard this over and over again. I don't want a direct report. I want an equal partner. And I 100% support that. Yeah. But think about this in a business context. Like even when we have, you know, co's that are at our level on our organizational chart, we still have to meet up with them and sync up and talk about, I need to give you influence sometimes and I need to accept influence from you sometimes. And I think it's that dynamic that oftentimes keeps the load invisible and the communication kind of off. Hmm. What you're saying to me is sort of rattling this idea around in my brain, not fully formed yet, but you're talking about how one of the biggest invisible loads, especially like when in the home is like, do I intervene? Do I not? Do I get involved? Do I not? Kind of idea. Like as you're describing that to me, that feels uncertain and that feels powerless, right? Mm -hmm. I was reflecting on my own experience and I'm like, who has like the final, final say really like when it comes to the kids and stuff? I'm going to go out on a limb and say it's probably me because I'll probably be like, these are my freaking kids and I get to decide. Not actually. Hey, social norms are a real thing. (laughs) Do you know what I'm saying? So, But there's Uh something here about power dynamics Mm -hmm. because women don't have power in a lot of situations. Mm -hmm. But come hell or high water, you come at my children and I'll show you the power that I have over the situation, right? Whereas men have power in the majority of the situations that they're in, especially white men. I'm married to a black man. He's from West Africa. I was going to say African-American. He's not African-American because he lives in Canada and he's from West Africa. But 
you know, power in all situations for him. Definitely not when dealing with authorities and other situations like that. But generally speaking, more power. So to come into the home as a man who's used to having power and try, you know, intentionally to take on areas where you may not have as much experience or I want to say authority, but not even, I don't know, something is uncomfortable and you have to be really healthy and secure in your masculinity and in your partnership. And then likewise, does the mother have to be comfortable in relinquishing some of the control and the power and being empowered in other places, maybe in the relationship or in the household to have power in other areas? I don't know. Does that make sense to you? Like I'm just having this like whole power dynamic sort of thing play out in my mind where I'm like, wait. Oh, yeah. This is really like the only place that women get to exercise control and power, honestly. Like where else do they get to do that? Erica, I get this a lot. I do a lot of training, like organizational training and and speaking and presenting. And I will regularly, I'm just used to it now, get asked questions that clearly come from a zero-sum game frame, which is, can't you just let the moms have this one? And I'm like, no, <laughs> one in 10 dad gets postpartum depression. Like nearly one in five gets an anxiety disorder in the, in the perinatal yeah. period. But the zero sumness of it is if you're advocating for dads, then you're taking away from moms. A, a dollar for dads is a dollar you're taking away from moms. And, and my frame is much more, no, we need to be looking at parental functioning, Mm. a family functioning, a parental mental health and a systems perspective, that it's not one or the other. At the same time, people do have finite money and resources and time. And again, if you pull back to like a broader sociological frame, when you look at women's employment and divorce rates and having significantly more upward mobility than they did 50 years ago, well, as women have more employment opportunities and to occupy some of these other spaces that are more traditionally masculine, those traditionally feminine ones about childcare and nurturing and the domestic work, it's not going anywhere. It still exists. Mm -hmm. There's a vacuum there that men are just naturally having to step into, although in some cases begrudgingly, in other cases pretty enthusiastically, but it's happening whether whether we want it to or not. Mm -hmm. Personally, I do. Because I see it as a move toward us being more fully functioning, toward that flexibility and balance that people need. But of course, I'm focusing on men. And it's the power dynamic, like asking men to do these things is enacting feminine roles, which is inherently assuming what we've always thought of as a lower status type activity. Yeah. And through doing this, we free one another, Mm -hmm. right? Like, so... We've worked really hard on our gender division pretty much because I was losing my mind with three young infants and trying to gatekeep everything to myself and had a nice big meltdown about it. And I got treated for my own postpartum depression and anxiety and all the things. Mm-hmm. And we we were forced to reevaluate. And when we did, it was the most freeing thing because on one hand, He wanted to be home with the family, but he was sort of like changed to the job and providing and the situation didn't really like lend itself in a lot of different ways. But as we've worked towards more equality in the home, he's built more like relationship, a connection with the kids and has a better understanding of my frustrations and experiences in, you know, household stuff. 
It's strengthened our relationship and it's freed me up to start a freaking company. Like Mm -hmm. how could I do that if I was raising three kids and doing all the tasks, right? So I don't know. It really – It's a lot. It makes me emotional, Dan, because both him and I – and I think about this more broadly for couples and partnerships out there – the things that we miss out on and the things that get sacrificed because we hold so rigidly to these roles, right? Like the tears I'm having right now are like thinking, oh my gosh, if we didn't recalibrate, look at the life we would be missing out on right now. And I think that for others, when I see them trapped in these traditional dynamics, and that's what I'm so passionate about. And I, as I can see, like, are you about having conversations like this to shift this for people? Because it's not just about mom having an equal amount of leisure time as dads do as often as reported and things like that. It's actually about being able to like step into things like your passions and your gifts and like a full expression of yourself, you know? Could not agree more. And I am super passionate about that same. It's it's one of the key aspects that when I talk about balance and flexibility for fathers, it means balance in the roles that we allow ourselves sometimes uncomfortably if needed, but to enact in order to show up as what's authentic. Mm -hmm. Sounds like your communication with your partner, like you're able, like in the context of postpartum depression, like that can be a real tall mountain to climb, but stopping and doing what you did and getting support and clarifying yourself and navigating it together. Some people never get there Mm -hmm. and cling to those roles and cling to, you know, what, I got told. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's why I'm really passionate about sharing this message with others. It's like, heck, if we could unwind all that (laughs) that was going on for us and learn how to do this, you can too, like if you're both willing. Like all it took was for both of us to have a mutual respect and regard for each other and to be willing to contribute to the team and the family in that way. We had a lot to learn along the way. Heck, I'm sure we still have a lot to learn. But yeah. Okay. One last burning question. Sure. Quick one. One last one. What do dads really want for Father's Day, Dan? That's all I need to know as we're wrapping up. Is it really Is it really the tool? Is it really the brush for the barbecue? Like, what is there, is there anything, any little secrets you got kicking around for us on what dads really want? You stumped me. <laughs> I know what I want. Okay, tell me. Let's start. Yeah, go there. So around our house, it costs us singly. When the toilet's broken or the ceiling fan needs installing, my wife does it. I'm the one that cooks. Okay. And we went on a ski trip in January and she was out there shoveling the snow and in so doing knocked off several of the mud flaps on my car. (laughs) And so I ordered the mud flaps and my father's day request was we get some good, you know, West Texas barbecue and she installs the mud flaps on my car. I love it. I love it. Part of why you stumped me is because I don't think that's representative you know, like, yeah, in some ways, like, I know it's a bit of a cliche at this point, and it's pop psych. But if you're familiar with the idea of love languages, and you're aware that, you know, these are things like physical touch, acts of service, quality time, but it's important to understand that there's the love language that we speak. And then there's the love language we want spoken to us. Mm-hmm. And they're oftentimes not the same. And so my probably is that my answer to your question? Yeah. You got to know you got to know the guy in question. You got to know the person in question and say like what would really help him to feel loved and seen as a father 
maybe it's a you know a tie with a loud print on it maybe it's installing <laughs> the mud flaps on his car maybe it's i don't know i don't know what it like yeah somebody else it would be something different I, I, my answer is something that would help him to feel seen mm. and that looks different for everybody yeah that might be a gift or as you said that might be an act of service or doing something for you that is just special mm-hmm. and dedicated to you Dr. Deanne, thanks so much for taking the time to join us today. I know we went a little bit over time, but this is such a valuable and important conversation. I appreciate you being here. Where can people learn more from you? Where can they find you? So I'm on the web at www.menexcel.com, E-X-C-E-L. We're also on social media, on Facebook and Insta and Twitter. Same thing, M-E-N-E-X-C-E-L. We'll link through all of that in the show notes as well so people can easily find you and navigate to you. Appreciate your time today. Thanks so much for joining. Thank you so much for having me on. Like, this has been really lovely to talk with you and I appreciate you including this in your podcast. It means a lot to me. Thanks so much. Oh my goodness. I could have talked to Dr. Dan about this topic all day long. So many light bulbs were going off for me when we were having conversations about the difference in power dynamics and how traditionally this is the primary place that women have been able to have power in the home and over themselves and their lives. The more we work together as a team in our partnerships to understand the experience of each other in the invisible loads that we carry, the more we'll be able to work towards actually working together as a team and feeling more equality within the home. If you're struggling with the division of labor in your home or being stuck in these rigid or traditional parenting rules, I encourage you to reach out and book in a free 15-minute consultation with one of our therapists. They specialize in helping with the adjustment to parenthood and can help you work to redistribute labor or set up patterns so that your home can feel more fair and equitable. To book in a free 15-minute consultation, head to momwell.com. That's momwell.com. I'll see you right back here, same time, same place next week, where I am being joined by Dr. Catherine of Healthiest Baby to dispel all the myths about toddlers. You don't want to miss it. I'll see you right back here next week. I can't even begin to tell you how happy and honored I am that you choose to spend your time here with me each week. If you're looking for resources or links from today's show, or you need a refresh on anything we've talked about, visit our show notes. You can find the link in the episode description, or you can head directly to momwell.com slash learning center to join the momwell email list and be the first one to know about new episode drops, insider info, or freebies head to momwell.com slash newsletter. Join me next week. Until then, remember that you have to be well to momwell. Settling is not an option. Everything I desire is already mine. What if you can have it all? Because every day is for the girls. Hello, hello. Welcome to For the Girls podcast, hosted by Victoria Alario, For the Girls Who Want More. Listening to For the Girls will have you ready to raise the bar, stop settling for the bare minimum, and start believing you can have it all and step into the 2.0 version of you. You can catch a new episode of For the Girls every Monday across all podcast platforms. Until next time, girls.